0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Dr. Eric Russell about the concept of healing, healing of self, healing of others, healing of organizations, and healing of societies, particularly within the current socio-political context. Russell welcome to the Human Capital Innovations podcast. Thanks glad to be here. It's great to have you back I like uh, these weekly discussions that we're starting to have this is the second installment and we uh, intend to do this every week or at least most weeks uh, going into the future. Uh, For those of you who didn't join us last week uh, Eric Russell is an HCI research associate he's also an associate professor of emergency services at Utah Valley University um, Eric and I go way back. We're good friends, and co- we've been colleagues for a long time, uh, and we're both advocates for servant leadership, and, uh, and as we go through these discussions each week, we're going to talk about different elements. Um, so with that, Eric, why don't you launch us into our discussion for today?
1: Awesome. Well, when I was brainstorming where we need to be and looking at the world um, in its current state, uh, I think the characteristic we need to discuss today is is healing, and Larry Spears identified um, healing as one of the ten characteristics of the servant leader from Greenleaf's work, and we need to expound on it for the, our society. Uh, we need to talk about it for the individual, for the organization, for um community and for the uh the leader him or herself like we all have wounds and there are systemic problems that exist within society uh we've never dealt with them and people need to be healed from these things before they can move on so this is going to be an exciting topic and i think we can we can probably do do some cool things with it
0: yeah, and, and the topic of healing, of course, connects to, uh, it could be physical, it could be mental, it could be spiritual, emotional, right? There's, there's these um, various forms of healing. Uh, I'll just state, put it out there right from the beginning that we're not therapists, we're not mental health professionals, we're not, we're not trying to be here, um, but, but we want to talk about the concept and we want to uh, share some thoughts and insights. Uh, and if anyone listening is in need of, of a mental health professional, we would certainly encourage you to seek seek out um, those individuals.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because the wounds—that's the thing. Physical wounds heal, um, but it's the mental wounds that last forever. That's that's the trauma. That's the PTSD. That's the that's where you need to reach out for help. Yeah,
0: and you can't you can't just wish it away. Right. Uh, I have a good friend, um, you know, on a personal level, um, talking about personal healing. I have, I have a friend that has had issues with anxiety and depression. Um, and a few years ago, it was pretty severe. Um, but she comes from a pretty traditional household, very conservative household. Um, they kind of think that, uh, you know, getting medication for that kind of thing or going to a therapist is hokey and, and new agey and not necessary. And so anyway, she was talking to her dad and her dad basically said, you know, he was super dismissive and said, you should just go to Home Depot, buy some materials, build a bridge and get over it. Right? Uh, and that's, yeah. that's not helpful. No. <laughs> um, so, so especially someone who's like in the middle of intense um, uh, bouts of anxiety and depression. Um, you can't, you can't just get over it, right? And you mentioned PTSD. You can't just get over that. Um, you know, th- there, are, there are mental exercises, there are ways of framing our thinking, there are things that we can do um, that a, her- a therapist can help you work. You know, they can help give you those tools to work through, but it, it, it doesn't just magically happen and you can't just will yourself out of
1: those types of traumas. No, you can't just pray the pain away. Um, that's a, it's a cop out. It's a very easy statement that people like to say to, um, kind of get out of that discussion because it's a, it's not an easy discussion to have with people. Um, in the world that I come from, it's, it's a difficult discussion. It's different because people think they're going to lose their career. They're going to be judged. You're not tough. You're not, you're not an alpha. And the thing is, is I don't care how big and how strong you are, the human soul and spirit, depending on what you believe in, is the same size and that gets, that gets damaged and our, our mental health gets damaged. It just does. And until you deal with those traumas, you can never be healthy and move forward. But it's funny, if somebody gets into a car accident and they break their back, um, we have all the sympathy in the world and we have all the medicine in the world. But if somebody actually gets hit by a car, they heal, but they're having these problems now, walking down the street, they're having that PTSD, they're having that flashback, our answer is, is well, get over it. Well, that secondary experience that we talk about, reliving it over and over again in your mind, they have to be able to deal with that. You need healing for that too. You know when when you go through traumas, when you go through like when you look at the number of people who have been abused as children, okay, sexually, physically, emotionally, there's a lot of damage out there for people. And if people were open about those things, like I'm one of the lucky ones that doesn't have that stuff, you could say it's privilege, right? But you have to help them fix that because how do you get your? How do you get the best out of your people if they're carrying such a pain, and, and that that needs to be healed? And how yeah. do you think you're going to get the best out of yourself without you know without healing that? And it's okay to not be okay, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you started to frame it in terms of um, organizations, and we we do we want to talk about individuals, we want to talk about teams, organizations, even society as a whole, how we go through this healing. Um, any, anything more you want
1: to say about framing it in terms of Greenleaf's, uh, philosophy and servant leadership? So the whole idea of servant leadership, when he brought it forth, remember he talked about the, the, the toxic, the toxic organization, the toxic bureaucracy, the the toxic problems. Well, the whole idea of servant leadership was to heal that. Like that's what the philosophy is trying to do is it's, it is it's trying to heal these not just wounds, but these ongoing, these ongoing wounds that are, con, are continuously um, caused by these organizations. And so that's really how you wanna look at servant leadership is servant leadership is a way to, to heal this. Um, I'll let you pick which one you wanna start with, be it organizations, be it individuals, and we can, we can talk about whatever, but that's really at the heart of what Greenleaf was talking about with servant leadership was trying to heal this toxicity that exists.
0: Yeah, and I think let's start with organizations, but framing it within how organizations can both heal as organizations, but how leaders within organizations can help their people heal, yeah, that's uh, and that's that's something that you just referred to. Um, and again, you know, to a certain extent, when there's trauma, when there's um, emotional anguish, anxiety, stress, um, depression. Some of those sorts of things, you really need to go see a therapist. Uh, there's just no other, you know, way around that. Uh, it's it's just a necessary thing, just like going to see the doctor uh, and getting medicine, um, you know, for your back injury or or whatever, right? Um, so we do need to destigmatize mental health um, uh, and and be able to have honest discussions about that, both within our homes but also within the workplace. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly private thing, and so you have to, within the workplace, you have to be very careful about that. You obviously can't be um, sharing someone else's condition, you know, one of, one of the people that work for you. You can't be sharing their condition with other people. But you can look for ways to be supportive and accommodating to people who have experienced trauma. And I've seen examples where organizations and, and particular leaders have been exceptionally good at that. Um, and I've, I've seen situations where where they're exceptionally bad, and unfortunately, the exceptionally bad ones or uh, trending that way on the spectrum uh, tend to be more common. Um, because at least in, in U.S. culture, again, there's a stigma behind um, mental health issues, uh, and we kind of have this idea that you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps, be tough, show up to work. we you know most employers they're at will employers, so they can get rid of you at any time. So if someone's struggling, the inclination of a lot of employers is, you know, I don't want to deal with this crap. You know, they're late, they're, they're, uh, you know, they have an attitude, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're struggling with customers, whatever. It's a performance issue. We're just going to get rid of that person. And that's, that's a common approach Mm -hmm. and how um, leaders will take it. And I understand that. I understand why they would do that. Uh, But then I've been, I've been so, amazed when i've seen the opposite happen where i've seen a leader who observes that kind of behavior and especially if they observe it in someone who's already had a good track record with the organization someone who's a valued employee someone who's done great work for them and then there's like a downward trend um and i i'm thinking of one particular leader where their approach was anything but um uh what's the word i'm trying to think of they they weren't um trying to discipline their employee. Rather, they went to them. They recognized, hey, you're struggling with something. What can I do to help you? They searched for ways to be supportive. They searched for ways to be accommodating. And they helped that individual get the help they need and then uh, fulfill their potential again, right? And that's, that's what I would love to see happen more within organizations and that we wouldn't be so quick to push
1: people to the side or, or, or to the curb. Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree with that. Um, well, let, let's look at it. let's look at it from an economic standpoint. All right, you have somebody who works for your organization. Let's say they've been with you for eight years. Think of the amount of money and time that you've spent getting them to where they're at and think about especially like you said they're they've always been a good they've always been a good um, follower, they've always been a good employee to just dismiss that person and get rid of them or push them aside and just let them break it's going to end up costing you more money there is you don't benefit by losing your talent you actually end up costing your organization more money so when we look at organ one of the biggest ways that i i measure organizations when i work with them is i want to see their retention rates right i want to see how many people are still there and so if we just treat people as throwaway products especially when somebody's having just a bad time like you think about it what if you have an employee who lost a child like you seriously think that individual is gonna be okay in a few weeks Do you think they can just pull them up by their bootstraps they just went through hell they just went through the one thing that we say nobody should have to go through which is bury your own kid all right what if they're going through a divorce um, what if they find out that their spouse has a terminal disease we're very we're very quick to to use that you're only as good as your last act kind of a thing, and I think that mentality causes us to just throw people away instead of helping them heal now that doesn't mean that some people just they go too far like you can't get them back and that's one of the it's one of the skepticisms associated with certain leadership is that whole idea of well, you just have to have infinite patience. Well, no, the whole idea of patience is, is it comes to an end. But I think as a leader, if you're, if you're a leader worth, worth the salt, I think you have to work to try to help heal the wounds of your people. And that goes to what we talked about before as far as um, listening is concerned, hearing the things that aren't being said. You know, You know your people. You can tell something's wrong. Approach them and approach them humanely. And we'll talk about society and what we see in policing and what we see and what we see out there on the streets. And that's that's one of the worst things that I think has happened is we forgot to see each other as people.
0: Yeah. and And before we move on, maybe I'll just say a couple more things about that. You mentioned retention. Um, which is a, a very important metric, and the cost of people leaving is not trivial. Um, and so just treating employees like cogs in a, in a machine and you can just replace the cog, I mean, that's incredibly naive <laughs> of a leader to think that. It's it's hard to get good people into the right positions doing
1: things. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um,
0: and it take, it's expensive, it takes a lot of time. So, so if you have a good person that's going through something, help that person. Um, and ultimately, from an economic standpoint, it's in your benefit to do that, like you just mentioned. Um, and when we think of, of retention, a lot of times we think about people choosing to leave. Like we wanna keep the good people from choosing to leave. But it's also there's involuntary and there's voluntary turnover. The voluntary turnover gets a lot of the focus. Involuntary turnover, that's where people get fired. That also is just as costly for organizations. Um, and Because a lot of uh, employers, you know, use this employment at will um, philosophy and they just say, ah, your your latest uh, uh, behavior, your latest uh, performance hasn't been up to par, so you're gone. Um, That's also not a trivial expense to the organization, especially if you consider if they were to just invest a little bit of compassion, patience, and um, support into that person who was once a good performer to help them get back being a good performer you know you can avoid firing that person and and getting them back into a condition where they where they're able to be you know a, a, their whole self and part of the team again um, but it doesn't happen magically it, it requires a people centered focus and it requires compassion and empathy and unfortunately those aren't characteristics that all leaders you know have um, and that's why servant leadership is a powerful philosophy and uh, approach um, because it really espouses you know, trying to do that. Um, before we move into society and talking about policing a little bit, I also just wanna talk for a minute about organizational health, like organizational healing. Um, because organizations as institutions, as systems themselves, they do harm sometimes. They have bad policies that hurt people. They, they have products that hurt people. They hurt the environment, whatever. Organizations need to heal as well, um, and not just from a PR standpoint. It's not just about saving face with the community so that people will come back and start buying your products again. Uh, it's it's about actually being a healthy company, a healthy healthy culture where people want to work for you. Um, you can attract and retain good people. You can um, you can you can drive customer loyalty. All those things are byproducts of it. Um, uh, but it's not just about that. It's about um, healing as an organization, acknowledging your faults, your missteps, your mistakes, apologizing for those mistakes, and moving on. And until apologies are made, until you actually acknowledge the pain that you caused as an institution, then you can't heal. Uh, and unfortunately, we see examples. Um, you know, I, I I'm not going to name any specific organizations, but I you know I have a few on the top of my head. Um, that they're, they're trying to do good things. I know that they're putting trying to put their best foot forward. They want to leave the past in the past. I get that. But sometimes you just need to acknowledge the pain. You need to apologize for the hurt you caused. And only then are you able to step forward into healing. Uh, and and you, you
1: just can't sidestep that, that, uh, that step. Yeah, and it's dripping in ego. I, I call it, I actually write about it I call it the, it's the new sheriff in town kind of a thing. Um, You take over an organization, especially if you're coming from the outside and you just think all of the problems are going to go away because now you're in charge. And if it's been a toxic organization that's, that's done horrible things. If it's, if it's ruined people's lives. um, Like imagine if you were a mid-level employee at Enron, you know, you're responsible for ruining people's lives. People killed themselves after they lost their jobs and their pensions and everything from like, you're a part of that. And an organization that has that toxicity that exists in it. It's like you put, I don't know. It's like putting sugar in a gas tank. You've you got to clean all of that. You have to take the whole thing apart. You have to wash it out You have to clean out the fuel injector you got to do everything and then that can run again but if you haven't fixed that problem within that organization that organization is still sitting in a level of toxicity and again from an organizational leadership standpoint it is a direct benefit to you to fix this you know Usain Bolt is the greatest sprinter of all time but If he has a problem with his hamstring, he can't run. He has to be healed. He can't be the greatest if he has that kind of an injury. And if you make him run with that injury, it's just gonna exacerbate it. It's gonna make it worse, and he might never run again. And I like to use him as an example because he's like one of the most perfect athletes that's ever lived. But that's how an organization is. is when you have these problems within organizations and they've existed over and over again, maybe it's an organization that's had that cronyism, maybe it's had that, that baboon management style, who knows? But so many problems, and when you listen to people and they're constantly bringing up the past, you know that there's, there's problems that exist that have never been healed within that organization because they've never been addressed. And so that new person takes that, le- that leadership role and they just pretend that they're there and it's, it's just dripping in ego. And there's a, there, is a, there is a tangible benefit to them to fix that problem and to heal that organization because people are carrying those wounds. They have that injured yeah. hamstring.
0: And, and it's the difference between long-term versus short-term orientation and a sustainability mindset, okay. right? Because Absolutely. Cer- certainly there's pain in the short-term. When you acknowledge those problems and you make the apologies and you try to address trauma head-on as an organization, there's short-term pain. And there's gonna be short-term ramifications in terms of dips in productivity and those sorts of outcomes. Um, but if you take a long-term perspective, a sustainability perspective, there's only upside from from seeking that healing. And the, the, um, the example of athletes is, is a really great one because you you just don't magically return to gold medal stature after a major injury, unless you do everything that needs to happen in order to heal whatever the injury was. You can't just, you just can't pretend, you can't just say tough it out. You can't just say, just pretend like uh, nothing happened. Um, And and unfortunately, I think, because of the fear of the short-term pain, um, that too many leaders and too many organizations aren't
1: willing to take that critical step. That's well said. The other thing is, is I don't know. It's kind of a new phenomenon. It's like the last, maybe the last 30 years in American business, maybe the last 20 years in American business is this, oh, we just look to the next quarter. You know, it's not, we want to build a, sustain, a sustainable business that grows and is phenomenal for centuries. You know, these, these great companies that have been around for forever. It's like, well, what, what's the next quarter? I don't know where that comes from. I don't know where this mindset came from. Maybe you do. Um, but I think they look at it the same way. They look at healing the same way. It's like, well, you know, if we try to have the problems in the short term, even though we're going to be better in the long term, well, it's going to hurt our quarterly, our quarterly profit. It's going to hurt this. It's going to hurt that. I, businesses used to not think that way. And yeah. they do now. What's your thought on that?
0: Yeah, I think I think there's a lot driving that in terms of both like if we think in the us there's cultural drivers of that because it's not the same everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's definitely some cultural differences. There's some legislative differences um, in the us that have happened over the last uh, few decades that I think have contributed to that. Uh, and we we have such a, a huge focus on shareholder um, interests, right? And stock prices, and like you said, cur- quarterly earnings and, and uh, the quarterly outlook, because that's what drives um, CEO and C-suite executive uh, bonus structures and such. Um, that all has emerged in the last few decades. Um, the huge w- um, pay gap in terms of um, executive pay versus Average um, pay of employees within organizations—that's like crazy wide now, and only gets wider and wider every year. Um, so some of those types of things, in, in kind of this hyper-competitive approach, um, it drives efficiencies, it drives productivity, it drives, you know, in in many ways, a strong economy. Um, but there are unintended consequences, and there are negative consequences and harms to people. Um, when that approach is taken, and when you don't take the time to step back and to do the necessary hard work and painful work of of helping people address the trauma and helping them to heal, uh, and you said it perfectly. If I'm if I'm a CEO and I have this huge windfall um, bonus coming my way, um, but I need my quarterly earnings to look wonderful this year in order to get that, am I going to be inclined to to um, disrupt the system and to, to uh, tip over the cart and to dismantle things and to clean it and to get it work in pristine order, or am I inclined to just push through and just get people to keep going even though there's trauma that needs to be addressed? And m- most leaders push through um, because they're not willing um, to take the personal hit that would come to them. In terms of their status, in terms of their pay, in terms of whatever, um, and and then they they uh, they rationalize it in terms of well I'm I'm providing value to the shareholders. Um, that that frustrates me when I hear that because well the, the best value to shareholders is long-term sustainable growth, long-term sustainable value for the organization. Yeah, um, you know that's the best value, and so it, it's not like an either or. You either Address harm and trauma, address it, heal, and move forward in a positive way, or you force people to um, just push through so that you can maintain productivity. It's not an either or, and that's how it gets framed often, uh, and it's it's harmful.
1: Yeah, it seems it seems like we're doing that with everything in society. It's an either or. When you talk about that, I think about Wells Fargo. I would always say that Wells Fargo is probably. It's always been the gold standard, right? Like the gold standard of banking, and the things that happened at Wells Fargo over the last six six years, um, that really hurt the bank. It hurt their reputation. And you're talking about an old business now. You're talking, you're not talking about some young startup that just went IPO. You're talking about talking about an old business, a trustworthy business. When you when you think of secure. You know, financing and things like that. You think of Wells Fargo, especially as a national, a national bank, very well respected. And that tarnished the reputation, also tarnished the reputation of the people who work there. They're Absolutely. almost afraid to say it.
0: I, I have, I have um, uh, some family and friends who are executives in other banks, and they flat out told me if if they have a person who applies to work at their bank and they worked for Wells Fargo previously, um, they at at best look at them with incredible skepticism. Um, but oftentimes they won't even consider them. Um, yeah. and it's because of the toxicity that existed there uh, and it was systemic and it was top down. Yeah. Um, it wasn't just, it wasn't just some bad apples at the bottom level, right? It was systemic. It was top down. It caused all sorts of harms to the organization, to the people, um, to consumers. Uh, great, great example. The Enron example is another great example. Um, these are toxic companies and it doesn't need to be that way. Um, so anyways, I, I think it is important to remember that we're talking about healing as individuals, as teams, as organizations, um, and organizations do need to do the work of healing. Um, okay, let's shift a little bit now and talk about society. And, and we're, right now we're dealing with, you know, the, the aftermath of the George Floyd um, horrific um, killing, um, the, the protests that are happening across the country, um, uh, lots of public debates about policing. Um, you're a emergency services professional and professor first responder. Um, you know, what, what's your perspective on all of this and how do we heal as a society? There's so much angst, so much pain, so much trauma. So, you know, uh, institutional and systemic racism, you know, how do we heal from all of this?
1: Whew. It's deep. Do you have all the answers, Eric? God, I wish I did. I wish I could just snap <laughs> my fingers. Um, I really do, and, and make it better. But there's healing all around. Um, let me first take it from a law enforcement perspective. Um, right now, and for the last several years, it has been very difficult to recruit law enforcement. Fire and rescue is having problems, the military is having problems as well, but especially law enforcement. People just don't wanna do the job. <music> to be a cop and to be a cop, and, not, and I'm not talking about federal policing. This is, this is local municipal policing you really do see the worst of humanity over and over and over again. And fire rescue does too. Law enforcement for some reason, it's just they're different roles. So people trust the fire department, they love firefighters and they distrust the police. And so you basically put that uniform on and go out there and you do a job And I just think that it eats at you day in and day out and it wears you down. But that's not what happened in Minneapolis, okay? That's not what happened there. As a matter of fact, I wanna say that what happened in Minneapolis was even deeper than this. That cop had a history with George Floyd. They both worked at a nightclub together. That cop seemed to me to have that Napoleon syndrome where he was small. George Floyd was a massive human being. He was a spectacle to be seen. He was 6'6", I want to say like 260, 270, completely yoked, just huge. Um, And that cop, in that moment, used his position and the submission of a man who one-on-one could have crushed him in a one-on-one competition. to dominate him to embarrass him to cause him to urinate and eventually he killed him and he didn't do it i don't think just because george floyd was black he did it because he was intimidated by george floyd because he could never be a man of that size and stature and when he finally was able to get him wrapped up and handcuffed and a couple of other guys kneeling on him. He put his knee on his neck. And I don't want to say that that guy is the problem in policing. I think that stands out as just absolute, utter cruelty. It is an abuse of power. It is somebody who should have never been a police officer in the first place. So I want to kind of set that aside when we're talking about policing. But the way that our system is set up with law enforcement in our society, we pit our cops against people, whether we like it or not. That's what we do. We put them out there against people. And even the cops know it. Most police officers want reform. I'll tell you that right now. If somebody whose best friends are cops, if somebody who's worked hand in hand with cops, on somebody who's trained SWAT, all this kind of stuff, I am here to tell you right now, most police officers want reform. Because you can't keep doing this. They don't want to go out there and do this either. And the vast majority of police officers were not the kids that their lockers in high school that get that badge and that gun to go out there and bully people that's not a lot of cops but when you constantly put somebody out in society and stage them against somebody else i.e the police officer and the citizen this is going to happen it's it's just that way and then you put them in riot gear and you give them you know 80 90 degree temperatures and people are shouting at each other and things are being thrown at them and they're angry too and they don't even wanna be there either. It, it's just people are gonna snap and it's horrible. It really is horrible. And that goes to the fact that we can't give the jobs away right now. And if you wanna go a little deeper with this, just look at corrections. 75% of people that go into corrections as a corrections officer are self-removed from the profession in the first 60 months. You wanna talk about a retention problem and a cost. You have states that have hundreds of vacancies. And it's just because of what the job is. Most police officers, and when I say most, I mean most, will stand between you and the thing that goes bump in the night. And they will take a bullet for you like we saw up in Ogden, the other day in Utah here where, where that police officer was shot, he was 24 years old, responding to a domestic violence dispute, and he was killed. That's most cops. But the culture of policing and the way the system is set up, the lack, and, we, and I've researched this, we have peer-reviewed publications on this stuff. The lack of civilian oversight, the way that we train police officers and what we expect of them. You know, when we deinstitutionalized mental health in the United States, we made our cops, our social workers, our psychologists, our drug counselors, like that's not what they're trained for. When you look at the standard police officers standard and testing, when you look at that stuff, and even when you look at a standard criminal justice degree, which is the degree that most police get, either an associate's or a bachelor's degree, it's lacking in that stuff. But yet we expect them to go out there and be the social workers. And then on top of that, most people that they even that they deal with in society, maybe like a traffic stop and stuff, even they're good people. But because that they because you deal with violent people in that mix, you deal with somebody that was maybe a strong arm robber, you deal with somebody that just, you know, was an attempted murder or a murder or somebody that has a gun on them that's running from you and all this kind of stuff, or maybe you're in a shootout. That puts them on tilt. So now they're on point. So no matter who they're interacting with, once you get that in there, once you beat that dog over and over again, that dog is gonna wince every time you pet it, and that cop is gonna be on point every time they deal with people. And policing has changed because of this. And that doesn't mean that there isn't serious, serious issues in policing. That doesn't mean that there isn't embedded racism. And even the cops know this when you look at the war on drugs okay there there is such systemic racism in just the war on drugs alone you seriously think somebody goes to the academy to become a law enforcement officer to bust somebody for a ten dollar bag of weed but then you look at the arrests and they're arresting far more persons of color than they are than they are white people for the exact same crime and when they go to the justice system and they go through the court system the, the, the sentences are different, too. And so that brings yeah. us to the other side. One of my favorite things that I ever heard on the subject was Van Jones said, what do I have to do? Dress my son up in a tuxedo so he can walk down the street. And it was right after Trayvon Martin was killed by George Zimmerman. OK. And George Zimmerman denied orders to stand down. And Trayvon Martin, as far as I was concerned, was protecting himself. He was a kid. Okay. And he did exactly what I would do. If you follow me and my wife around a few blocks, I'm going to come at you too. And so when you look at the way that especially black youth are viewed, where something as stupid as wearing a hoodie. But again, it goes deeper. They're, you're enculturated. Look at how the media portrays it. Look at how Hollywood portrays it. Look at how they portray kids on the streets. So you'll see somebody walking down the street with a hoodie on, and you're all of a sudden thinking that they're some type of a gang member, and they could be a freaking a tech superstar. They could be a kid that's in law school. They could just be coming from the gym. But again, it's that programming. It's that experience. You're watching it. And so we take these two things and we pit these people together out there in the streets. We pit working class cops against poor and working class people over and over and over again. And then they experience violence, they deal with each other. They experience violence, they deal with each other. It's just a recipe for disaster.
0: Yeah. So, you know, as we, and we could go on and on to talk about the, the problems the struggles—it's incredibly complex—and um, and I don't want anyone listening to you know get the impression that we think there's some sort of simple solution to this because oh, that's no. that's not what we think at all. Um, it's incredibly complex. But what what is clear to me is right now we're like at a tipping point, it seems, uh, in the U.S. And there is incredible trauma, incredible pain, um, and it needs to, it needs to be addressed. Um, there, there needs to be reform. Um, what exactly that needs to look like, that's up for discussion and debate. Um, and there's going to be honest differences of opinion on that. But I don't think many people think there isn't a need for reform. Uh, reform needs to happen. Um, there's no doubt there. I mean, there's clear evidence of, of disproportional targeting of people of color um, and systemic racism not just in policing, but in many different aspects of society, that's a problem. And how do we how do we heal from that? We there. There's no way to start the healing unless we can acknowledge the pain, acknowledge the trauma, recognize it in ourselves, recognize it in our institutions, um, apologize for it, uh, and start to have the difficult conversations that have to occur in a sustained way to make course corrections and and that will allow us to heal over time. There's no quick fix, there's no easy answer to this. We can't just pass a law you know, in Congress next week and, and all of a sudden everything's gonna be fine. Um, th- this pain has been centuries in the making, um, and in part, our where we're at today, I think is a result of us trying to do just like we were talking about with organizations, is that as a society, it seems like a lot of what we've done is just try to say, well, that's in our past. Uh, slavery, Jim Crow, uh, you know, all that, all the civil rights movement, it, that's in the past. We're, we, it was horrible, um, we're, we're horrified by it, but that's not how things are today, it's in the past. And we just kind of try to sweep it aside, sweep it under the rug. Um, what we're seeing though, is it's not in the past. It might seem that way for someone like me, um, I have all sorts of privilege, um, and so I may not encounter it all the time, but for people of color who experience it day in and day out, they know it's not in the past. They know that there's still the trauma that's just there right under the surface, or perhaps right in plain sight, um, but it's it's in their neighborhoods, in their communities. Uh, until we can address past problems and truly rectify them, uh, I don't see a path forward in in a healthy way. Uh, and that's, that's gonna, politically, that's going to be an incredibly difficult thing to do um, because we're more divided than we've ever been um, in terms of political ideologies. Uh, and I don't know, the, the, the pain in the wedge that's in this country right now, it, it's, it's hard to see, and I'm not sure what the, the answer is. But we need to have more good faith dialogue. We need to have people coming to the table willing that have the hard conversations to look critically at themselves recognize what they need to do to be better, what their families can do to be better, and then we can start to build out from there. Yeah,
1: that's a good point. But I don't see this, I don't see a lot of the problems that exist today, the problems that the African American community needs to solve. I think a lot of the problems is, is we need to stop, recognize the problems that exist. I, again, you mentioned privilege and it, it's true. I mean, look at the Tulsa massacres. I mean, let's just let's just take this. Let's just take it for what it is, and let's go back for a second to the war on drugs and watched what that did to African American communities, where that wasn't a problem. It, it what it, it really wasn't an issue, but we, it just exacerbated problems and what were built up. If it, you have to, you have to go through history to see there were there were phenomenal businesses built by African Americans. There was these great communities and and that would burn to the ground. You know, or or they would just they were pushed out. And it it's hard because I I believe that privilege is far more socioeconomic than it is pigment. But we have to acknowledge that there's a responsibility on our part to go, no, 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 no. It's different when a black man walks into a bank to get a bank loan. It's different than when I walk in to get a bank loan. I don't ever have to check myself when I walk into a room. I never acknowledge myself when I walk into a room, but they're very well aware of it. And I say that because I have far too many friends that have told me that and I've experienced with them when we've been out. I don't care where you're at in the political spectrum, and I don't care whether or not you're a Black Lives Matter advocate or you're a law enforcement officer. This stuff has to be fixed because you can't keep going forward with this. It just doesn't work anymore. There's got to come a time where people just say, you know what? I don't care how I feel about it politically. I need to just work on it to fix it. And that article that I just had come out, that green soup leadership, that's really what it's about. I don't care what you call it, you just have to give people what's good for them. And what's good for them is a society that is on equal footing. And, and nobody's asking for a quality of outcome. That is a very, very rare thing to hear people ask that. They're just asking for a quality. And if you're poor, and this is one of the reasons why it needs to go just beyond being African American or being Latino. If you're poor, you have no justice, you have no voice, and you have no say. And you're seeing it right now in our own economy. The stock market is at record high, but we have all this unemployment. Why? Because most of the people who have lost their jobs are on the lowest rungs of the socioeconomic ladder. Like, if you, you don't need to look any further than that. To see that there is a problem in our society, there is a problem with race, but there's also a, there is also this massive socioeconomic problem. And I'm like you, I don't I don't pretend to even remotely have the answers, but I also know that it's not the responsibility of people who are being discriminated against to fix the problem.
0: No, yeah, no, not at all. Um, we, w- yeah, we need to show solidarity towards people who are in in those situations, um, being discriminated against, being abused, um, uh, disproportionately targeted. Um, We need to have those difficult discussions. Um, And it's painful, it's hard, and there's no easy answers. If there was, we would have solved it a long time ago. Um, Because most people are good, I I believe. Most people want to be fair. Yeah. Most people want to be fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people are, hor- like, regardless of where people are at on the political spectrum, most people are horrified by what happened, um, you know, what, what has been happening over the last couple of weeks and has and been profiled in the media the last few years. Um, so, so let's take this opportunity to, to start having these, these conversations, these discussions, uh, approach them in good faith, um, even when we're sitting next to someone who might politically disagree with us. And let's start to look for ways that we can um, we can drive solutions through political reforms, through social reforms, uh, whatever the case may be. And as we finish off today, we're about out of time, but as we finish off today, um, again, just coming back to where we started, it starts with the individual and individual health, individual healing. Um, organizations and institutions need to be thinking about institutional and organizational health and healing. Uh, and society as a whole, we each play that role, play a role in trying to drive societal health. Um, and it's my hope that leaders within organizations will will recognize their role in healing of their people and in driving healthy institutions um, and be willing to be humble enough to acknowledge the pain that has been caused, whether it was intentional or unintentional, to apologize, to step forward and, and to, to, to make things right. Um, I'll give you the last word.
1: It's for the good of everybody that you help people heal and that you heal yourself. As well, um, you don't want to live in a society where we keep pushing each other away. Um, I always ask people to really consider what somebody is saying when they're either trying to sell you something or to get you to vote for them. Like you bring up politics, I. I seriously believe that politics are a part of the problem. They have caused tribes. Uh, They have done undue harm to relationships with people. And we're all in it together, whether we like it or not. This, this, the world is hard enough to, to deal with and life is hard enough to deal with. And to watch each other treat one another like this I mean, what good is going to come out of it? And if you put it in an economic frame, let's do economics. It is in everybody's economic benefit to have better organizations, healthier organizations to heal wounds and to have healthy communities for everybody.
0: Well said. Amen. Um, It's been a a wonderful discussion with you today, Eric. Uh, I hope that everyone will seek healing uh, and both, both for yourselves, your families, um, your organizations. Uh, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe. Um, and, uh, I look forward to doing this with you again next week, Eric. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.